You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Today. So today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 14, verses 5 through 14. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. If you do not have a Bible this morning, there should be a black Bible somewhere underneath the seat around you. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, feel free to take that with you because, again, we value the Bible extremely highly here at Providence, and we want to be able to bless you all with that this morning. Again, we're going to be in chapter, uh, Exodus chapter 14, verses 5 through 14. If you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, Exodus chapter 14, verses 5 through 14. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was charged, or changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over the, all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at sea by Pihahirath in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would, be better, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. I want to say a happy Resurrection Sunday to you. Jesus is alive. Amen. And I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it is your first time, if you're a guest, we just want to say thanks so much for making us a part of your week, especially your Holy Week. It's really an honor to have you here, and we're glad that you are. Um, we've been working through the book of Exodus, like Scott mentioned, and, you know, typically uh, every year we would usually take a break from our normal sermon series in order to uh, focus on a New Testament text that's particularized to the story of the resurrection at Easter. But uh, this year, it just so happened that um, the, the sermon series that we were in, the Old Testament book that we're walking through, actually we're in a section of the book that mirrors um, and, and directly correlates to the story of the resurrection. And so we're just going to continue and kind of show how really the story of the resurrection is not just the story of the gospel, Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and resurrection is not a story in a part of the Bible. It is the story of the Bible as it makes its way from Genesis to Revelation. And so we're going to talk about that in the story of the Red Sea as the children of Israel make their way out of Egyptian bondage and, and towards the promised land. And so before we jump into the text, what I'd love to do is pray for us and to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us through God's word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'd like to pray for us. Father, first and foremost, we say thank you that the gospel's true. Thank you, Jesus, that you're alive. That the tomb is empty and it was borrowed because you did not need it for any longer than three days. Thank you that 
even though we can't even fathom the spiritual significance of that, what little we do grasp, it leads us to worship. And so now we ask that you would open our hearts as we open your word. Open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see. Help us to be wowed all over again for those of us who believe and for those who just aren't sure, help us to be wowed for maybe the first time by the astounding nature of your grace and your mercy, your sacrifice and your love. And so, Lord, we just trust, entrust ourselves to you. And, Holy Spirit, we submit ourselves that you might lead and guide us. And we pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. So Exodus has been a great book to work through. Um, and one of the reasons for that is because Exodus has all the ingredients of a good story. You know, good stories have a way of kind of bringing you into a journey, taking you on a journey. And I don't mean that Exodus is good just because it's actually a story about a journey, but it actually kind of brings you along. You know, this is where you can start reading a book. And if it's a really good book, you get what someone might say is, I got caught up in it. Or if you start watching a movie, you know, time kind of starts to suspend. You're kind of caught up in the movie. And you don't realize, oh my gosh, that was three hours long. And then you've all watched that movie where you're looking at your watch and you're like, why is this three hours long? And, and, and Exodus is a wonderful story because it has all those ingredients. It, it's easy for you to relate to the characters. It communicates deeper truths than what's on the surface. It, it causes you to ask deeper questions of what's actually happening. And, and then there's really great stories, the best stories, like the, the timeless stories. And the best stories have a way of being, having a number of stories within the story and that all those stories end up tying together and culminating in the greater, grander story. And, and it's really risky to do this. You've all, we've all watched a, a, a series or a Netflix series or perhaps even read a book that has a lot of these storylines that they try to tie together. It's very risky because if you don't tie them together, everybody's like, well, why did this couple even matter? And it kind of it kind of clouds the whole story, right? It's like, you know, if you've ever seen Lost, you know, it's a great show, but then it's like, what's the smoke monster all about, you know? And and it kind of it kind of messes things up, you know, or there's like, the, what are the polar bears that they found dead? You know, it's like you started adding all these things, and then you got to tie them all into the main theme. I love Lost, by the way. Nobody get upset at me later. When I grew up, my favorite uh, stories, I, my, my dad was a reader, and so in turn, you know, you kind of pass on to your kids. And one of my favorite uh, books to read, because I got into reading books, and I don't even know, uh, at the nine, I was worried that nobody would remember this, and I'd kind of be looking silly, but... There were some, so I'm kind of hoping now that more will. But I loved the Hank the Cowdog series. Yeah, okay, make me feel a little bit better. That was risky. Um, <clears throat> really loved it. Uh, I loved the series. I would read that, just devour those books. Now, I have to admit, they don't have, Hank didn't have a ton of depth, okay? It's just kind of your basic introduction, rising action, climax, you know, falling action, resolution. But I loved them, you know, and, and I think there's, there's nothing wrong with loving a basic story, but the thing about the story of God is it's the ultimate story because it takes that great risk of having not just a handful of stories that we have in the revealed word, but the story of God has every story of every human being that's ever lived and somehow ties those stories in and connects them in the end, culminating in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a wonderful story. And what we have with the revealed word of God is that all of these series of stories, you will never read a book in the Old Testament that doesn't ultimately find its yes and amen in the story of Jesus the New Testament mentions the Exodus story in particular multiple times, drawing direct connections between Israel being brought out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God to 
the church and every Christian being brought out of spiritual bondage by the mighty works of Christ. And so what I want to do this morning on Easter Sunday is I want to trace the story of Exodus alongside the story of Christ's death and resurrection. I want to trace the story of the Red Sea and, and together, by the help of the Spirit, try to see how it parallels what Jesus did for us during Holy Week. And so let's start. I want to start reading in verse number one. I'm going to read verses one through nine. I know uh, I asked Scott to read five through 14. Um, I tried to get him out of reading some of these cities, but it didn't work. Um, He deserved it because I have to read it twice, you know. So, all right. Verse one, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth between Midol and the sea. In front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And so they did so. Now, for those of you who have been walking with us for a while, you know that that line right there, God has said over and over and over and over again, which is, why did God decide to do what he did with the Egyptians and the plagues and all, so that the whole world will know that I am the Lord? That's what he has said over and over again. Okay, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is it that we've done, that we've let Israel go from serving us? And so he made ready his chariot, and he took his army with him, and he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And the Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and he overtook them and encamped by the sea, by, by, by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, this is kind of, kind of funny, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Now, that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of saying that, but you got, before we get too self-righteous, we would have probably said worse things, okay? They're upset at Moses, like they're looking at these Egyptians bearing down on them, and they're thinking, oh no, this is the end. He says, what have you done to us and bring us out of Egypt? Is it not, is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Now that's dishonest. He did not, they did not say that, okay? Um, But now they are. They're like, it's better for us uh, to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Verse 13, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. So there's just a wonderful reality here with Moses and then kind of a a little bit of a comical one. The first wonderful reality is he fortifies them in the name of the Lord, says, you just have to stand. God is going to fight on your behalf. Just stand firm and watch the glory of the Lord and and don't say anything. And, and, And the kind of comical thing is he's like, just shut it. You know, and, and that's, I say that because if you, if you actually read, one of the things that the children of Israel were known for is grumbling, and Moses is just kind of like, all you have to do is close your mouth, and it'll be okay. You know, like that's his encouragement. So what's happening here? God, and if you remember, Corey kind of walked us through last week, God's leading them with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, and he guides them in a direction, and then all of a sudden, God says, I want you to tell them to turn around, make a U-turn. It's like the worst Google Maps experience. They're in the wilderness. I want you to take a U-turn. I want you to go directly the opposite way. 
And Moses, here's what I want you to go. I want you to encamp by these three cities, uh, two cities on each side, and I want you to have uh, uh, one right in front of you. Now, these names of these cities, uh, apart from being funny because we can't pronounce them uh, and, it, and it's difficult to, uh, to stand up and try to read them, they have meanings, they have etymologies, and those etymologies actually are worthy for us to consider. So where does he tell them to go camp? Well, it says that on one side of them is the Red Sea. So they're backed up to the Red Sea. You can't, you can't go there. The other is uh, my doll should be before them, uh, M-I-G-D-O-L. And, and this etymology is something like uh, the great tower or the tower of strength. It would have been a great like kind of citadel of Egyptian strength, all right? The other two cities, one is called Baal Zephon, the other Pihiroth. <laughs> Baal Zephon literally means the Lord of Darkness. And the idea was that the Lord of Darkness, this false god Baal Zephon, was looking over the Red Sea and lorded over their maritime trade, made sure that their trade got over, and basically kind of made sure that there was safe passage for the Egyptians. The other one, Pihiroth, means the mouth. Okay, so what do we have here? God says, turn around, do a U-turn, set up camp. Where do, you, where do we set up camp? God, I want to corner you in where you got the Red Sea on one side. You, uh, you have the, the tower of strength on another side of your enemies. You have the mouth of your enemies over here. And then you have the Lord of Darkness that you face. He literally tells them, set your camp up facing the Lord of Darkness city. <laughs> so there's no way out. You're cornered in. You might be thinking right now, like, the worst camping idea ever, perhaps in the history. This is not like you and your family going in the RV. Like, this is bad. And this is where God sends them. Now, meanwhile, Pharaoh has a change of heart. And his change of heart is not a change of heart in the right direction, but in the wrong direction. Now he wants to bring his armies out against Israel. It says he brings all of his choice chariots, 600 of them, and all the other chariots. He brings his whole army, and they're coming to bear down. Now, there's two things happening here. What we see is that there's Pharaoh's intentions and God's intentions. Pharaoh's intentions is the further enslavement and destruction of God's people for Pharaoh's glory over Yahweh's glory. And we've talked about this. If you want to go check the podcast out, we've talked about how this is constantly set up as Yahweh, the God of Israel, against the pagan gods of Egypt typified in Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh wants to defeat Yahweh by further enslaving the people. God's intention with this is the freedom of his people, the destruction of Pharaoh's army, and the glory of his name being known throughout the whole earth. Now, this is the uniqueness. That's, that's fine. That's just like if you watch a Super Bowl, both teams have, a, have an intention. It's to win. It's to dominate, right? And that's fine. They're going to meet on the battlefield. What's totally unique about this story is that they both have the same plan, the exact same plan. And it would be okay if the same plan was to just score touchdowns. But it's like one team is like, I'm going to dominate and score touchdowns. And the other team's plan seems to be something like, we're going to set ourselves up to be dominated. We're going to set ourselves up in a way that we can't win at all. There's no way. Like, we're going to hamstring ourselves by making sure that our best quarterback doesn't play. We're going to make sure that we, you know, every kickoff, catch the ball on the one and fall down. Don't kneel it because we don't want it on the 20. We want to start at the one. That's what's happening here with Israel. And yet they stay, both want to, the victory. Now I want to read verses 15 through 18 because it, it kind of ups the ante here, and then we're going to talk some more. But God seems to be extremely confident in his plan. Listen to what happens in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, 
why do you cry to me? Now, God, the Lord is a good father. He's very gentle often in the scriptures, and he responds to us when we cry to him. Here he says, the time for crying is not now. The time for action is now. Stop whining. we got business to handle. Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Forward where? Well, he'll tell you. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory and, uh, over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Now, I just want to make mention of this. On one hand, God says, I'm going to make sure that you have a way out. And then in the back half, he does something that just kind of like adds a little more tension. He says, and I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he'll chase you into the depths. And you've got to be thinking, if you're anything like me, why don't you not do the second part? First part sounds great. Second part sounds like, why would you do that? Here's the thing. They have chariots. We are on our own two feet, and we've been walking through the wilderness. By the way, you sent us 30 miles this way and then said, you turn. We're tired. Seems like that would actually be counterintuitive. Okay. Now what we see in the scriptures is this happens exactly as God had planned it and he gets glory over Pharaoh. Now this last week we, we celebrated Holy Week, right? And Holy Week is the week that celebrates starting on Palm Sunday, Jesus triumphantly marching in to Jerusalem and he faces down, just as the children of Israel are facing down the Lord of darkness, Jesus faces down the Lord of darkness and endures the most unfathomable, intense suffering that any man has ever endured. And what I want us to see, what I want us to explore is the parallel here between the Holy Week story and the Exodus story. So walk with me on this. Jesus, according to the Father's will, marches the disciples into Jerusalem at the Passover. Crowds everywhere. It's a big feast day. Meanwhile, the Pharisees, and Jesus knows this, he is not unaware of this. In fact, he's so aware of this that at times he said, we're not going to go to that city because they'll try to kill me. We can't go there because it's not my time yet. The Pharisees have been colluding for months, maybe longer, to try and arrest him and kill him. He walks directly into the brood of vipers in Jerusalem. That's their home. That's their, that's their playing ground. That's where they all are. Marching into Jerusalem at this moment with his disciples is just like the children of Israel marching to the edge of the Red Sea, hemmed in on every side. And yet, what we know is that Jesus is led by the very hand of God to do so, in the same way that Moses was led by God's command to do so. Providentially, just like Pharaoh was plotting to trap the Israelites, to enslave and to destroy them, Satan was at the very center of the plot to lure Jesus into this feast day and arrest him at night while he prayed with his disciples. We know this because at the Lord's Supper, the Bible records that Judas had Satan enter his heart before he went to betray the Lord. Satan enters the heart of Judas, is the actual scripture, and then he does what he does. Now, meanwhile, God's plan and his design is being woven behind the scenes, and, and we watch this play unfold and what we have to see is whose plot is going to produce the desired result. Satan wants to see Jesus destroyed. Satan wants to see Jesus beaten. Satan wants to see Jesus crucified. And the craziest thing is that God the Father and Jesus both want it too. 
Now, we know that in the flesh, Jesus doesn't want it because he prays, if this cup could pass, please let it pass. But nevertheless, your will, Heavenly Father, not my will in the flesh be done. So the same thing that Satan wants is the same thing that the Father wants, at least in action, but they have different intentions and outcomes. The same satanic bloodlust that leads Pharaoh to chase the Israelites to the edge of the Red Sea and even against them into the Red Sea is the same bloodlust that led Satan to enter the heart of Judas to beat, to scourge, and to crucify the Christ. Now, I want you to imagine something for a moment. I want you to imagine the roar of the armies of Pharaoh when they showed up with their entire army. Because if you've been with us during this sermon series, you know Egypt has basically been destroyed by these plagues. Their agriculture has been destroyed. Their, you know, their, their cattle have been destroyed. Um, their firstborn, um, the firstborn sons of the entire Egyptian people so that their future has been destroyed. The only thing they have left is what? An army. And their army comes out against the children of Israel. Could you imagine them coming to this place where here they are like sitting ducks? Fortified cities all around, the Red Sea behind them. They must be thinking, could you imagine the roar of the armies? They're toast, right? We know the roar must have been significant because the children of Israel are so scared about it. They're like, Moses, why, what, why would you do this? You know. Now I want you to imagine at the same time that when Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross and said, it is finished, the roars in the depths of hell as they thought they won. I want you to think about the celebratory party that they were having in hell, thinking they had killed God. Satan had finally done what he wanted to do in the garden, and he had done it now in Jerusalem, God's city, he had killed the Christ. Jesus breathes his last, they pierce his heart sack so that blood and water comes out, and In hell, they must have been having a good time. Then, of course, what we see is that Moses holds his staff over the sea just as the armies are roaring, and the whole Red Sea parts. And through this sea of red, now the Israelites are going to have to go underground. They're going to have to go meters underground and start walking with the walls on their right and on their left. Now, now here's the thing about this. You might be thinking, okay, that's miraculous now that the upper hand is with Israel. But wait, this is the ground of the underworld. The Egyptians would have seen this as they are on our turf. If you read Egyptian pagan mysticism, they worshiped the gods of the underworld, the gods of the sea. This was their place. They believed their gods ruled here and they had done the sacrifices. All they, they thought this is us. This is our time. It's the Egyptian bread and butter. And so they chased the people of God down into the depths. Now, fast forward to the cross is that as Jesus says, it is finished in the depths of hell rejoice, something odd happens. There's an earthquake, the Bible records. And at this earthquake, there's tombs that are emptied. And now there's dead people walking around the streets of Jerusalem. The temple veil, which is inside the holiest of holies in Jerusalem, tears in two. There's a big earthquake. It tears it in two. The Pharisees see this. And what you see is there's almost a hurry with the soldiers at this point because there's just been so much. So much so that one of the Roman soldiers, the book of Luke records, beats his own chest and says, we shouldn't have done this for surely this man's the son of God. They rush Jesus into the tomb. Get him into the grave. Get him into the grave. They put a Roman seal over the stone. Keep him in there. But Satan must have even still been thinking at this moment because he is, after all, obsessed with death and the grave. He must have been thinking, he's still on my turf. 
Now, I want to say this before I get to the next part. I believe the Apostles' Creed, and I know that there's some discrepancies about what people think about when Jesus descended into hell or descended into the grave. But I believe that descended into hell is, is correct. But even if you don't, I think this will still be very helpful to consider. Christ then descends into the depths, just as the children of Israel did, with the broken body that he bore all the sins of the world. And it's at that moment that we start to see a turn. We don't have time to go to it, but I encourage you to go to it later. In the book of Exodus 14, it says that as Egypt chases down the Israelites in the depths of the sea, they can't catch them. Now think about that. The Bible is specific to record they have chariots. The Israelites are on foot, and they can't get them. The Bible says that the mud at the bottom of the sea starts to clog the chariot wheels, and it says that the Egyptians turn to the Pharaoh and say, their God fights for them, we should turn back. In the end, they're swallowed up and they're committed to the very underworld they thought that they ruled. Jesus descends into the earth and what Satan expected would be an ultimate defeat becomes clear to him. Satan had orchestrated at the cross of Christ his own destruction. Every hold that Satan had on the human race, on every son of Adam, every daughter of Eve, is now gone. The bondage and the slavery to sin and death that Satan had wielded for generations was now over. Christ, the Bible tells us in Revelation, claims the keys of death, hell, and the grave. John the Revelator said that he saw Christ, and Christ put his hand on him and said, Fear not, behold, I have died, but I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of hell and of the grave. He announces to Satan and all the demonic forces that he has won, that when he said, It is finished, he meant that he had beaten them, and not in a small skirmish, like the book of Exodus, listen to me, over Egypt would be considered a skirmish and a battle. Jesus on the cross was the war, and it's over. He won. Now I want you to think about this. The only thing louder and more shrill than the joy of hell on Good Friday is the shriek of hell on Holy Saturday when Jesus shows up and tells them what they did. Every plan Satan had ended up to the glory of Christ and our freedom. Every plan Pharaoh had up until this point ended up for Israel's freedom and God's glory. Just as Israel came out on dry ground and God swallowed up the Egyptians into the Red Sea, Christ rose again, and on the third day, the power of Satan's sin and death was swallowed up forever. In case you think I'm making this stuff up, I'd like to read to you Colossians 2, because I didn't just make this up. This is Colossians 2, starting in verse 8. This is Paul. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. For in him, that's Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. This is why Satan thought he killed God. And you've been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and all authority. And in him also were you circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of flesh, the circumcision of Christ. Well, what is that? Having been buried with him in baptism, think about the Red Sea, into the waters, in which you were also raised with him, coming to the other side, through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Christ from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses 
By doing what? These are key verses. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I want you to understand that in the courtroom of heaven, Satan represents the prosecuting attorney. And he has the legal law before him. And he has a ton of records that accuses you and me. And they're true. Now, I know that that's controversial, and in our day, I'm not supposed to say that we've done anything wrong, but I got the bad news to lead you to the good news. It's that we have. And he says, guilty, 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 and he looks to the Father, who is just, and says, you must punish. And this is what Paul says, that Jesus, Jesus cancels that record by saying, yeah, you can nail me to the cross, but that means their whole record has to go with it. And what happens? This is verse 15. This is key. And doing so, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So it's at the moment of the cross that Christ not only overcomes the evil one, but he disarms the evil one from accusing me and you. He takes away the bullets of the gun. He takes away his ability to accuse. It looks something like this. Now when the enemy comes and says, John Doe, or let's say it like this, Court Marley, here's his record. You know what he deserves. I can respond. It's even worse than that. I'm worse than you just said. Your records are only partial. You don't even know the thoughts and intentions of my heart at times. But then I can say, but I'm in him. And the defense attorney is no longer me. But at that moment, what do I do? Just as Moses said, I stay silent and see the salvation of the Lord. I shut my mouth. I don't say, yeah, but I was pretty good. I volunteered. I was at that soup kitchen in 98. I was pretty good. I mean, you haven't even seen Joe, my neighbor. He's terrible. No, I shut my mouth and I let my advocate speak. I let the one who died for me speak. And he silences the accuser because now I'm in him. Another way of putting that is now the just judge who sits on the throne, when you're in Christ, he just sees Christ. Now, what's the final uniqueness of God's story? It's this. God's story, unlike all the stories that we typically read, um, is not entertainment. We don't passively receive it and say, hmm, good stuff, good story. God's story is meant to, designed to, and always does demand a response. The Christian gospel is God's way of leading us like the children of Israel with the Red Sea at our backs and then telling us to face down our enemy, look into the Lord of darkness so that we see what's after us, and then we're met with the decision. You see, you and I are not just looking at Satan, who's our enemy, and trust me, he's real and he hates you, but listen to me, you're also looking at your own sin. The Christian gospel does this. It brings you to face up to your own sin. If it doesn't do this, then you have nothing that Christ has saved you from. Christ can be a nice man, a kind man, even a sacrificial hero uh, man. He can be a martyr but he's not a savior until God has helped you face your own sin. Satan's scary, but he's not scary unless he has something on you. We must see that he has something on us.
And then the question becomes this, will we wade with him into the waters by faith because Christ at the cross parted the sea? Either we are plunged beneath the flood along with all our sins and demons that haunt us and God raises us up on the other side to be saved or we reject the offer and we're consumed anyway. But listen to me, this is something that we need to hear. Indifference is not an option because indifference is rejection. Finally, there's an important reason. I said this and I kind of left it hanging earlier. Why did God send the Egyptians after them? Why not just let them go, right? And I believe there's a very important reason that God sends the Egyptians down into the underworld, into the sea, into the waters against the Israelites, beyond just getting glory over them through destroying them, although we know God says that was one of the reasons he did it. There's another reason. If the Israelites trudged through the Red Sea and made it to the other side, it would have been a miracle, okay? Whether they swam it or whether the God parted it and there was nobody behind them chasing them, but it still would have been a miracle, but it would not have been the miracle God intended. Israel may not have clearly understood what God was communicating at the time, but God, thousands of years later in the cross, communicates something like this. No one goes into the baptism waters without sin clinging at their very heels. No one goes into the baptism waters clean. Let me, let me say it more forcefully. No one even goes kind of clean. The baptism waters are not the hose that you wash your feet off with before you go into the house. Everyone who goes into the baptism waters has sin clinging at their heels, waiting to devour. The horse hoofs can be heard. The breath of your enemy is at your neck. There was only one sinless man who ever entered the baptism waters, and it just so happens that we are baptized in his name. (laughs) For the rest of us, this is what God was communicating. We still have a lot of Egypt in us. Saying, Israel, you're set apart because of me, not because I chose you for your goodness. You see, there's still a lot of Egypt in you. And there's a lot of Egypt chasing you down. But it's because of Christ that when we come out of the baptism waters, the Father declares us completely clean before the host of heaven. It looks something like this. And I've said this many times when doing baptisms. Baptism is you proclaiming Jesus' name before men and women. And then in Christ proclaims your name before the Father. It's clean. Now, does this mean that we're never going to struggle with sin again after baptism? If you've been baptized, you're kind of like chuckling a little bit, right? Not too loud because you don't want to be awkward in front of the person you don't know because it's so packed in here. I don't want them to think I'm that bad, but that's funny, you know? Well, let me ask you, did Israel struggle with being kind of Egyptian-like in their behavior after the Red Sea moment? I know we haven't gotten there yet, but I'll just spoiler alert, like 10 days later. Not even that. They're grumbling quick. Worse is like 40 days later, they literally see the presence of God fall down on a mountain and Moses goes up and God's speaking through the cloud and within like, I don't know, 72 hours or so, they melt down gold into a calf and start dancing around it naked and call it a God. No, conversion and baptism is God's way of assuring us that our identity has been imparted to us by faith on the basis of one thing alone, Christ's 
grace. And the reason for this is this. Listen to me, and if you're a Christian, then I want you to hear this. So when your proclivity to run back to Egypt and behavior of Egypt arises, baptism is a way of God reminding you that's not who you are anymore. I saved you out of Egypt. When you find that proclivity to go back to Egypt in your behavior, to go back to the bondage of sin, your baptism is there to remind you that's not who you are. You're my son. You're my daughter. You were rescued from that slavery. You have no business going back to them. They hate you. I love you. That's not who you are anymore. You know, when you do study on the Red Sea and why it was called the Red Sea, there's, I thought I could get a little bit more conclusive about this, but as is typical of our day, you can't. There's just so many people, oh, that means because it's a sea of reeds or just like a hundred different opinions. But one that I found that was pretty compelling uh, was that at the time, and, and even still, there's a bacteria that gets into the water in the sea, uh, the Red Sea in particular, other seas, but in the Red Sea in particular, and it actually turns the water with the appearance of red at times, which I don't think is coincidental. There's an old hymn by William Cooper, and it says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. You see, there's something about going into the baptism waters, going into the Red Sea, that what stays there are the enemies of God, Satan and sin and death and the grave, but you come out the other side new. doesn't mean that they're still not going to try to be clinging at your heels. But what I want to encourage you, Christian, is that no longer are they like the armies with the chariots, the AK-47s. They're, they're clinging at your heels with water pistols. Christ has disarmed them. And you need to be reminded of your baptism that he has left it there, and that's not who you are. Of course, we celebrate baptism because of this. And I pray, Christians, that you're reminded of your baptism. But more importantly... I want to say to, to maybe someone in the room who isn't sure they're Christian or, or maybe you know that you're not. And I want to say, if maybe God's cornering you this morning, that you can trust in Christ for salvation and that he's worthy of it. That, that what God might be doing to you, is God has a way of, of setting you up where all you can see is enemies at every side so that then when the gospel's preached, you could see the sea's been parted and then he bids you come. I said in the middle of this sermon, I wanted you to imagine the sounds of hell on Good Friday, and I wanted to end with this. I want us to imagine the sounds of heaven on Sunday morning. Could you imagine it? When the tomb was opened? We know that there's already two angels that are sitting on the stone, right? But could you imagine the sounds of heaven when Jesus overcomes the grave? If you've ever read Revelation, I know it's an intense book. You know, talks about dragons and beasts and prostitutes. It's pretty intense. Um, but there are some portions of Revelation that have some of the most beautiful imagery that you could ever imagine. And one of my favorites is that John says that he, in a deep sleep, sees the council of heaven. He sees the throne room of God. The 24 elders and the host of heaven are all around. And he says... 
someone must open the scroll and no one's worthy to open the scroll. And John falls on his face crying and he says, no one can open the scroll. Now the scroll represents judgment, but it also represents the unraveling of the end that Jesus would return. And he's realizing that no one's worthy to open the scroll, which would bring final redemption. And it's said that one of the angels touches his shoulders and says, fear not. He says, fear not for the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's worthy to open the scroll. And he says, he looks up and he sees a lamb as though it had been slain. And he opens the scroll. And my favorite part is then it says, and all of the heavenly host with the elders and the angels begin singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and praise. And this song of heaven just continues to echo that he's worthy. And I want to propose this morning that we bring ourselves, if we can, in our minds to what the song of heaven may have been like singing the worthiness of Christ on Sunday morning and what that might be like this morning as we celebrate baptisms or as you, if you don't trust Christ right now, make the decision to trust Christ this morning, what the sound of heaven might be like. Worthy is the Lamb. The Bible says that in heaven, every single time someone repents, that the heavens rejoice. And so this morning, that's my prayer, is that we would be reminded of our baptism if we're Christian. And if not, that we would rejoice too, because some in the room today, the heavens will rejoice. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm, I am inadequate to be able to communicate the depths of your unbelievable story and just how intricate. But now I pray for those under the sound of my voice that you would extend your merciful and gracious hand and that with their spiritual eyes of their heart, they would see the Red Sea parting, that, that Red Sea that represents the impossibility of them knowing you, the impossibility of them being near to you, the impossibility of them being saved, that they would see that it's been parted because the gospel's true. Jesus, you died, but you're alive. And I pray now that you would help us to rush beneath the flood that you might bring us up on the other side as we sing and as we take of your supper. Let it be true for us in Jesus' name. Amen.